Coming up this hour, a whole lot of news. We're going to talk about doom scrolling and some passages that actually aren't passages. That's coming up next on The Common Good. Everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And for the first time in a very long time, our producer, John, is back. Put your hands together, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! We have missed him. It has been a long time since he has uh, been a part of our show. It just hasn't felt the same, has it? No, it it has not. It is good to have the the whole team back together. John, we are really glad to have you back. The, the boys are back in town. I don't know that I should be, as a Detroit fan, probably not quoting that song, but I did it anyway. So <laughs> a couple of things. I got a whole a whole heap of uh, links for this first segment. I, I guess just four. We probably won't have time to take a deep dive into any of them. But quickly, Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of these aforementioned articles. You can weigh in. You can send us a message. You can review or share that page. You can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good wherever it is you get your podcasts. Brian was was downright pleading on Thursday or Friday. So if you're uh, – Yes. It, was it Thursday? Oh, yeah, yeah before our divided show on Friday, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. But subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps out a, a whole ton. And then Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Super grateful for all of you. Brian, it is uh, – what's it, 147 degrees out right now? Is that um, what I'm seeing? unbelievable it's like we go from like wet to then all of a sudden in the springtime and all of a sudden it's immediately a hundred degrees and uh yeah it is uh it's an oven out there that's for sure it's it's not just an oven at least an oven is a dry heat right this is like swampy awful we've been walking a lot with the with the boys which i don't know why we subjected ourselves to that but either way i am thrilled (laughs) to be in the coldest part of our house in the basement right now uh all right so i mentioned i got four links here I'm going to let you choose which one you want to jump in on first. Oh, okay. I'm the sports guy. Let me go to the sports one because uh, the Alabama mayor resigns after post about Crimson Tide's Black Lives Matter video. So the University of Alabama and everybody in Alabama, there's a bit of an obsession about the University of Alabama's football team coached by Nick Saban. And they put out a video, a really well done video uh, about a, a kind of a, in support of the African-American players on their team. And Nick Saban was prominent in it. Uh, talk about how Black Lives Matter. You see a lot of these um, uh, intercollegiate teams doing this. Mike Krzyzewski just did this with his Duke basketball team. And there's a uh, controversial mayor in Alabama by the name of Mark Chambers from Carbon Hill, who submitted his resignation letter to the city clerk on Saturday uh, because he voiced his uh, disparaging comments online about the University of Alabama football team. And uh, two lessons, be careful what you say about the Alabama football team in Alabama. Uh, sure. But secondly, uh, it is uh, example number one million whatever that what you say online sticks to you. And uh, that got him right here. So he's going to resign. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it always amazes me when people have to try to distance themselves from what they say on social media. Are you surprised by this story at all? I'm not. This guy seems from what I read, obviously, I've never heard of him. But from what I've seen, uh, this guy is when you're quoted, when you're called in a story like this, the controversial mayor uh, is yeah. uh, not a surprise. So so he came full fledged flying out about socialists and baby killers and all oh, just crazy stuff. And so uh, not surprised that uh, 
There's there's people looking for publicity, but then not surprised at the blowback of this. He initially denied the comment, but later apologized. Right. Um, so not surprising, but it's still sad. You just see stories like this popping up and we shouldn't be surprised by it. But uh, especially in our social media age, it just seems to be happening more and more. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk about it eventually. The Supreme Court decision. Uh, also, Trump and Obamacare. But I didn't know about this one till super recently. Facebook. Facebook's ad problem just turned into a full-blown crisis. Uh, this is out of Vice News. As Mark Zuckerberg is scrambling to appease Facebook's critics as big and small brands pull their ad money, but it doesn't seem to be working this time. We've talked a lot over the last yep. year and a half or so about some of the controversies around Facebook. It says it started as a murmur of dissent, but over the weeks of the campaign to persuade brands to boycott Facebook's ad for the month of July turned into a major crisis for the social media giant. It began badly on Friday when, uh, who's that? Unilever, 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 Unilever. Uh, one of the world's biggest advertisers announced it was joining the stop hate for profit campaign, which had already been backed by Verizon, Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's. We talked about some of those earlier. Facebook quickly tried to take action to stem the outward flow of ad dollars, announcing a new policy that would follow uh, would follow mm-hmm. Twitter's lead and begin labeling questionable content. But it wasn't enough. Coca-Cola and Hershey's joined the campaign soon after and throughout Saturday and Sunday. Dozens of other companies, large and small, added their names to the list. So again, I'm I'm curious if this has any implications for you, Brian. Like it is one thing to see these massive corporations back out. The question I'm always kind of grappling with is what does this mean for like just the average Joe American though? Does it does it change in your mind uh usage or does Facebook is it still sort of benign to you either way or yeah, I don't think it would change my usage one way or the other, although I think there's other things that are quickly changing my Facebook usage. But uh, like what? This, oh, I just uh, I think there's an article we might get into later, but I, Facebook has been a real uh, increasingly. So it's already pl- always played this role, but it's really kind of had a, uh, a I would say, a um, psychological effect on me when I'm on it too much. And I had a moment like a month ago going, why am I still on this so much? So I've been on it a lot less. But right. Um, you know, I do think Mark Zuckerberg has had a lot of opportunity over the last year, two years, or even since 2016 to change the way they do things, and they haven't done it. And so it is kind of nice to see cor- corporations going, fine, we're going to we're gonna like kind of hit you in the way that's going to hurt. I forget which company it was, but I read somewhere today one of these companies had a $95 million worth of Facebook advertising. Like We're not no talking kidding. about small numbers here. Right, right. And uh, and so I'm good. I, I like to see all the stuff that's kind of people. It's hard to say grassroots when you're talking about big corporations, but these are people going, nope, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. And it's going to force change in places like Facebook that had shown that they're not really open to changing when it comes to stuff that might affect their bottom line. That's true. All right. Two left, Brian, with two minutes. Which one do you want to do first? You know, this is one of those you and I love to use the phrase route over our skis, but the Trump administration files Supreme Court brief to end Obamacare amid COVID-19 crisis. I don't I'm going to say this. I don't understand health care very well, the politics behind it, how it all works, the Obamacare, this and that. But, man, it feels bad optics to me. It really feels bad uh, timing and and, uh, probably intentional to do this in the midst of COVID-19. So some people out there might be like, well, no, they want to get rid of it so that they can replace it with something better. I don't know. We're in the midst of a pandemic. So when I first read this, it was like, is now really the best time to try to do this? Um, What's the purpose behind it? Um, 
So, you know, I don't have much more to say than that. It feels like in the pandemic, any move that might cost people their health care feels like a bad move to me in that in this exact moment. Okay, minute left then. What do you think of the Supreme Court that struck down the Louisiana abortion law? Uh, Yeah, I hadn't actually heard about this until I read the article. And uh, Justice John Roberts, who is supposed to be the conservative, keeps swinging the vote the other way. But his was more based on precedent. Uh, You know, for me, uh, anything that makes abortions harder on its face, I go, okay, I'd rather that happen. So that didn't happen in this one. But I do think for abortion to ever really get worked on in our country uh, in our society, it's going to need to be much bigger than this, right? Getting at the heart of the laws, but also just at people's hearts. And so uh, I think abortion is right up there on the list of the worst things in our culture. Uh, so this law wouldn't have done that much. It would have made abortions harder to have in Louisiana. But I do think um, there, hopefully there's some big things coming down the way where the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on these things. We shall see. But uh, John Roberts was, again, the swing vote, and he he tied it to precedent to a Texas law. And uh, so we'll see what ends up coming down the pike. But uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump have said very different things about abortion. And so we'll see what right. that means for people when voting debt time comes around. OK, so that was sort of a uh, what would you call that, like a lightning round. So yes, the full articles, all of them are posted on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. And we really do mean this. We would love to know what you think. We know a lot of these topics are super controversial. The irony of posting one of them about Facebook on Facebook is not lost on us. <laughs> That's uh, funny. But we would love for that to be a place for continued dialogue. If you don't feel comfortable commenting, send us a message. We'd love to know how you're grappling with these different topics. Well, coming up next, this is something that Brian and I probably run into a lot as pastors. Seven sayings that people often mistake as scripture. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Webs and any place that will allow you to either like or subscribe or review or share, even if it's just a phone call. Just call them up and say, hey, I just discovered this show. I think you'd really appreciate it. All of that does really help us out. I think people often think, well, they don't really need my review or my share or my help. It all helps. And also... Brian is uh, unashamedly admitted that he's a very much a words of affirmation guy. So That's you'd, true. Be, you'd be filling up his love tank as well, which is mm-hmm. what better motivation could someone need, right, Brian? <laughs> that, if if I were listening, that would be motivation enough for me right now. People be like, hold the phone. I'm going to go review this because this guy, he really likes the love. All right. <laughs> so this is from churchleaders.com by Carrie Kintz. Seven sayings people mistake for scripture. I run into these. All the time. I reviewed the seven of them. I've heard all seven. So I think this is interesting. And again, for anyone who doesn't know, Brian and I are both first. Our primary jobs are pastors. And uh, as many of you are aware, pastoring often includes preaching and counseling and other aspects therein. And I think what's interesting about this list here, and again, now that we're going to be sticklers about, you know, well, that's not really what that meant in the original context, which we can do. And we've done that before on the show. But these are just sayings that people will regularly confuse as, you know, it's in the Bible somewhere. I remember hearing an actual preacher once say in a sermon, it's like the good book says, a penny saved is a penny earned. <laughs> no, you did I'm like, I don't, I don't think they had pennies, man. I don't think that's in the Bible. So that was different because it was from a pulpit. But these are ones, and I'd be curious to know if people have said or thought these or heard them themselves. And 
it is also a list, and Brian Fromm is a big fan of lists. So why don't you uh, kick us off then, Brian? Yeah, uh, number one. And I like how it says this. It says, when we start assigning cultural idioms, catchphrases, or ideals to scripture, that's kind of what these are. So number one, uh, money is the root of all evil. And this is very close to something the Bible actually says, right? It says, as far as sayings go, this one is probably this close to being right. (laughs) It's often used to warn people against the evils of obsessive materialism and greed. However, Paul admonishes Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 to be wary of the love of money, which is the root of all evil. And Paul says, has even drawn people away from their faith. As it seems to go in scripture, uh, the issues is the, the issue is the motive and affections of the person rather than the object of said affections. And I think this one's so important because uh, when money is the root of all evil, then it becomes an issue of being rich versus being poor. And But uh, there's a lot of times where I haven't had very much money in my bank account, but have had a love and a desire for money. Uh, yeah. Kind of this love of money, I think, is is much more prevalent in rich and poor. And so uh, a very important distinction. Yeah, and I always have a little bit of a love-hate relationship, even with this clarification, because I think it does, in a lot of ways, here in the West at least, kind of let us off the hook to still yeah, probably you. be a little too obsessed with money. Like, oh, phew, I don't love it. I just only think about it 23 and a half hours a day and do everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it can a little bit let, because like James gives some pretty brutal warnings about wealth. Jesus has a pretty famous interaction with the wealthy guy right. that went away sad. So like, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. It's still an issue for a lot of us, but it's a good distinction. Here's another one. We actually did a sermon on this a couple of years ago. Uh, God will never give you more than you can handle. Generally, this is supposed to be a comforting statement to a person struggling in difficult situations. A quick survey of a few friends showed that almost no one finds this phrase remotely helpful, even <laughs> if the person saying it has good intentions. And it's not scriptural. Many cite 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as the basis for the sentiment. However, Paul is addressing the issue of temptation for Christians and that God always offers us a way to escape them. Instead, many of the gospel writers, even Jesus himself, tells the disciples to go to the Lord with cares, worries, difficulties, Mm -hmm. and heavy burdens. So again, I think people have good motivations usually when they say things like, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think at the very center of the gospel story is that there's plenty that we can't on our own handle. That's that's part of the good news, I think. So uh, this is one of those that just sort of gets slipped into conversations. And it's and like he's saying, it's not actually uh, not actually scriptural. That's right. Number three. Uh, blessed and highly favored. This phrase is very popular among various movements in Christianity, including the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. While the phrase is in the word, it is used in one very important context, Mary. The angel (laughs) Gabriel called Mary blessed and highly favored because she will carry the son of God in in her womb. Mary's response to the greeting was not exaltation and a claiming of blessing, but she was troubled by it, humbly knowing that she was not worthy of such a greeting. But Gabriel assured her that she had found favor with the Lord. It is a good reminder of how to respond when the Lord decides to bless us with anything. I think that one's uh, <laughs> that one's pretty self-explanatory and important. This is that's how you end most of your sermons, though, right? Blessed and highly favored brothers and sisters. Is that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. That's a little bit. Nope. Well, uh, number four, I, uh, this is uh, this too shall pass. I confess to saying this in the midst of trying circumstances. It's an overly simplistic statement when you're facing a myriad of issues, but for some reason it can bring a modicum of comfort. comfort. However, it's not in scripture. While the origins of the saying are sometimes attributed 
to Solomon, it isn't in any of his recorded writings in scripture. The most common attribution outside of the biblical king is that it came from a uh, from a folklore poem by Persian Sufi poets. It's also, and I don't, I mean, you you wouldn't know this, but it's in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I wouldn't know it at all. <laughs> right? Isn't, isn't that one of the one of the things you've never read? Read or seen. Yes, that is a true statement. But last oh, week I asked you if I could still be a Christian and you you had uh, questions about that. It still do. Number five, God helps those who help themselves. Right. But dear uh, Algernon Sidney and Benjamin Franklin, thanks for this. Did you know that when you penned and uttered these words that they would become a bully stick for many in the church? Probably not. Still, the sentiment that God only helps those who help themselves has caused much damage not only in churches, but in society in general. And the sentiment at its core goes against scripture. If God only helps those who help themselves, then why did he send Jesus to the cross to reconcile us to himself? Or why did Jesus say the poor would always be with us? Why are we called to those who are destitute, the widow and the orphan, if they just need to help themselves? Certainly, we must hold people accountable as we offer help, but our requirement to help is not predicated on our ascertaining of their ability to do so for themselves. That's an important one. All right, we got two left. Number six, yep. God wants me to be happy. We often use this when we consider things that we want and need to justify what we want with what we mistakenly think God wants for us. It's not that God wants us to be unhappy. However, his definition of happiness and ours are often vastly different. In fact, when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the word blessed nine times in the opening verses. When you look up that word in Strong's, Vine, and any other concordance or word dictionary, that word means happy, but we should all look very carefully at how Jesus defines happiness. Poor in spirit, peacemakers, pure in heart, persecuted for his name's sake, merciful, meek. How does this line up with our definition of happiness? That one that one kind of packs a punch. All yep, right, bring us on, Brian. One. Last one. Pride comes before a fall. Like money is the root of all evil, this is a contender for being this close to being correct. However, a miss is also as good as a mile. Proverbs 16, 18 states that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This distinction is important. Pride is what caused Satan to fall. Scripture is rife with how much God hates pride. He actively opposes it. It is significant that Solomon essentially says the same thing twice. The word haughty means pride and arrogance, and the word fall is defined as calamity or ruin. Many people seem to use the misquote with an air of lightness, almost indicating that a fall is more like a silly trip over a crack in a sidewalk. However, hmm. scripture clearly shows that pride and arrogance bring destruction and calamity to those who refuse to repent. So much deeper than what most of us use it as. Wow. Real pick me up show today, isn't it, Brian? We're going to have to. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> this next segment is not going to get us there. I will say this before we wrap up here, though. Uh, we did a series last year or two years ago. We called it Bumper Sticker Theology, and it was kind of tackling some of these some of these phrases. And one of the uh, refrains that we used was to ask, is it biblically sound or just sound biblical? And I think this is a, a perfect list of things that sort of do sound Christian-y. All that to say, it's worth actually doing the hard work to find out if it's actually true. And it's on our Facebook page. What are things that you've heard that you would add? Maybe things that you yourself have thought? We would love to hear from all of you over on the Facebook page. Coming up next, though, something called doom scrolling is slowly eroding our mental health. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, who is going to tell you all sorts of ways you can find out more about the show. 
And the ways are pretty much unlimited, but let me give you a few. You can find <laughs> us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common what? Good Radio Show. Lots of good conversation going on there over the weekend. And uh, we would love to have you join us there on our Facebook page. Also, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Go ahead and share it with a friend. All of that does help us. Those are just some of the places that you can find us. That was practically a song. I just felt like and had all the ups and downs of a, of a wonderful <laughs> sonnet, Brian. Well done. Uh, I also want to tell you about our friends at Thrivent. Thrivent.com is a great place to head. If you're unfamiliar, they're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years. I'm a Thrivent member. I love them and what they do. But if you're looking for a career change of some kind, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to look. And you don't have to have any background in finance. You just got to love helping people. And they're a great organization for that. Plus, we've been sharing a bunch of stuff on our Facebook page. They've been hosting webinars and providing free resources. They're a great partner. And I highly recommend you at least check them out to learn a little bit more. Okay, so I'd never actually heard this phrase or this term before, but the, the moment I read it, though, I thought, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that is because I do that. The headline from Wired is doom scrolling is slowly eroding your mental health. And then the subheading says checking your phone for an extra two hours every night won't stop the apocalypse, but it could stop you from being psychologically prepared for it. What's going on here? Yeah, when you said, uh, I could say exactly what you said there. I'd never heard this phrase. And then when I read it, I'm like, oh, totally been there. So let me just read the beginning part. It's 11.37 p.m. and the pattern shows no signs of shifting. At 1.12 a.m., it's more of the same. Thumb down, thumb up, Twitter, Instagram. And if you're feeling particularly wrought and masochistic, Facebook. Ever (laughs) since the COVID-19 pandemic left a great many people locked down in their homes, the evening ritual has been codifying. Each night ends the way the day began with an endless scroll through social media in a desperate search for clarity. To those who have been purveyors of the perverse exercise, like uh, New York Times' Kevin Ruse, this habit has become known as doom surfing or falling into deep, morbid rabbit holes filled with coronavirus content, agitating myself to the point of physical discomfort, erasing any hope of a good night's sleep. For those who prefer their despair to be portable, the term is doom scrolling. And as protests over racial injustice and police brutality following the death of George Floyd have joined the COVID-19 crisis in the news cycle, it's only gotten more intense. The constant stream of news and social media never ends. Let me stop there, man. I, I'm guilty as charged, not for like two hours, but generally when I go to bed, I'll read for a while to trying to get tired. You know, I'll read for a while and I don't go from reading. I mean, like read a book for a while and I don't go from that to this to sleep. Usually the last thing I do is grab my phone and start going through it and it can mm. be a lot. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, I've just been doing this for a half hour and now I'm stressed out about COVID or I'm stressed out about this. Right. Uh, yeah, this this uh, when I first read Doom Scrolling, I'm like, that seems like an overstatement. But then when you read it, you're like, oh, yeah, nope. I've even felt that, let alone how many others are doing this as well. Yeah, I, I'm I don't struggle with this at all because we're living totally Amish. Um, <laughs> there's a hamster that's currently powering my computer. So, yeah, you're you're alone in that one. I like how it goes on, too, because it says, of course, a late night scroll is nothing new. It's kind of it's the kind of thing therapists often hear about when couples say one or the other isn't providing enough attention. But it used to be that Sunday nights in bed were spent digging through Twitter for Game of Thrones hot takes or armchair quarterback in the day's game. Now the only thing to binge watch is the world's collapse into crisis. 
She goes on to list some of the crisis, which is totally true. And I thought, I thought about the fact that this is something that we're all sort of experiencing together. I thought that like one of the weird byproducts of this like global universal doom scrolling would be like a deeper sense of connectedness or, or feeling like we're in this together. That doesn't seem to be happening either. So it's like the increase of this doom scrolling or doom surfing. Plus we seem more divided, like even just the conversation we were having last week about face masks, right? Like it just feels like, wow, there might, I don't know that I see any silver lining to the, and it goes on to list some of the articles uh, that they've written previously about spikes in uh, anxiety and depression, not to mention things like FOMO. I don't know if you're a FOMO guy, the fear of missing out. I feel like everyone being in quarantine sort of helps yeah. squash that at least for a little bit. Like, well, I guess there's no parties I'm missing, but um, <laughs> again, a much longer article, but it has some, has some really interesting thoughts though, about like what it's actually doing to us slowly, but surely over time, uh, psychologically. Yeah. Now, you know, it, it was, you would open up Twitter or whatever and you would, uh, just read the stats about COVID or this. Uh, now with the amount of things that people are videoing and putting up that go viral, right? Whether it be, um, yeah. you know, uh, something going on in a protest or or even just the George Floyd video when it was going around. Or when you think about like now all of these videos of people like yelling at each other about wearing a mask in a store and flipping out. Like You just see all of these uh, inflection points of tension and you're just like, I don't know about you, but it just raises tension in me and you get mad at the people, but you can't do anything about it. And mm. uh, yeah, it's something. And, and I think just cards on the table for me, I do think uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, I'm not, you know, maybe I need to be more of an Instagram person, but Facebook and Twitter particularly, I do think are having a detrimental effect on me because I'm seeing things that friends are posting yeah. uh, or just, things that are going viral around the world. And, and it's much less informative for me and it's much more um, causes me angst and causes me anger. And and every time I, I don't know, man, it's weird. Cause when I try to get away from it, I'll end up being like, all right, I've taken a good little break. Now I can go back and then I go back and it all happens again. And so I totally get this and, and I probably need to give some thought to what's healthy for me. And I'm guessing I'm not alone with a lot of people out there. Well, not to mention to you talk about, you know, reaching for it late at night, the blue light and the way that it activates your brains and your eyes is like the antithesis of preparing yourself physiologically for sleep, which is, you know, for a lot of people, part of what gives them uh, repeated difficulty falling asleep, hmm. which again, I, I think there's probably people out there like, no, I fall asleep looking at my phone all the time. Like, yeah, but I think that there's like a, is a level of mental health that this article is getting after that. You know, we might not all feel like, we're about to completely come unraveled, but it, I think what's more dangerous sometimes it's like the slow, like eroding this chipping away. And then again, I, I would recommend go read the whole thing. Cause there's some really, really compelling articles kind of linked within it and some statistics about how our brains are wired to work with social media and technology. And like, if, if doom scrolling becomes something that we continue to sort of adopt as a, as a pattern of behavior, I think it's actually going to have some some socializing effects, not to mention like my brother's a chiropractor. You know, he talks about like the tech neck. He goes, yeah, people leaning over, looking at their phones is going to send all my kids through college. Like <laughs> as a chiropractor, it's just an unbelievably um, prevalent, pervasive thing that he sees with everybody now. So, you know, not to mention <laughs> some of those some of those other physical aspects of it. But I would I mean, I appreciate you kind of 
admitting to doing a lot of this, what would be, I don't know, maybe something that you would challenge people to do differently. One little thing maybe in the, uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Yeah, I think uh, I I actually like how the article kind of ends. I think that's a great answer to your question. It says, amidst all the pain, isolation, and destruction of the past six months, it's not worth it to add on the strain with two hours of excess Twitter every night. I think I would I would encourage people to go, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of those in our minds, they're like uh, escapes, and they're they're good things to get us away. When in reality, uh, it's the furthest thing from an escape. And so I don't know, maybe try 24 hours. No, no, uh, no social media. See if you enjoy it. Try 48 hours and keep going and see what the result is in your own life. Yeah. And I think another thing, this is a small thing. Don't bring your cell phone to the bedroom. Get an yeah. old fashioned alarm clock. Don't plug it in next to your bed, because I think that's the temptation to, for that to be the the last thing you do at night. And then, of course, the first thing you do in the morning. I think if you can conquer Last thing, first thing. I mean, that that sets you up for success, I think, in a pretty powerful way. Yeah. All right, coming up next, here's the headline. I love it. In a divided world, we need to choose empathy. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and I'm going to do this in reverse. You can find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts, subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole lot, and um, I don't know what else to say about that to make it any more imperative. Like, the show the show might not survive if you don't subscribe, rate, and review. Oh, there you go. That was it right there. It's it's also probably not true, but <laughs> anywho, you can also find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post all of the articles that we reference, but you can send us a message. You can also rate and review that page. Instagram and Twitter, same handle, at common good talk plus 1160hope.com slash the common good and we're super grateful for all of you who interact in any way shape or form we would love for this show to remain interactive that's sort of our hope that it serves the rest of you well and uh any engagement is really really appreciated so the here here's an article i saw actually a couple of places and it, it made me i don't know i wanted to have some happy news here yeah. in this first hour it says in a divided world we need to choose empathy and it kind of goes on to talk about how it has gotten harder to empathize which is exactly why it's so much more important that we work at it so what's going on and you just made a great point there because you would expect the title to say in a divided world we need to be empathetic but it's even more than active than that like we need to choose it because it's not it's increasingly not the default mechanism so right uh the author here writes as i dialed the number my palms began to sweat the person on the other end wasn't a loan officer or an angry lawyer. He was an old friend and we were about to catch up. This should all be mildly pleasant, but it was instead nerve wracking. You see, I had reached out to him because we had a problem. Over the years, my friend's politics and my own had taken incompatible turns. On social media, I saw him growing reactionary. He saw me becoming soft, politically correct academic. We sniped at each other online, then over text. After a while, I realized we'd forgotten our friendship and I proposed that we talk to each other to try and bridge our differences. Why did this seem so hard for my friend and I? And why do so many of us feel that human connection has become increasingly out of reach? And then he says, that's what he addresses in his new book, The War for Kindness. For over a decade, I've documented the many ways that empathy helps individuals, relationships, and teams. I've also learned how fragile it can be, but there are ways to reignite uh, empathy. And if more of us can do, we'll all be better off. So that's how he intros this article. Man, I can't think of an article that's more timely, uh, in my opinion, or one of them, because uh, we just talked about it last segment, some 
some of the dangers of social media. And I think one of the dangers is uh, at least what I'm seeing in some people in some circles that I that I go in uh, is especially over politics, over the protests, over covid. Yeah. Uh, not only are people giving their opinions, but they're forming their opinions about other people by those opinions. And uh, I've seen people who would never fight in person start going at it online and it right. get really ugly. People, you know, church, uh, people go to church together, people who are family members, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think uh, that's why I love how this article was intended. We have to choose empathy. Like we've got to go down that road because I don't think it's the easiest pathway to take in our culture right now. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned how timely it is because this article was written over a year ago. Was it? Okay. Uh-huh. Which is interesting because it also shows, I think, how timeless empathy is. Uh, and I think that you, I mean, you probably could have written this five years ago and it would have resonated then 10 years it would have resonated then, which can be discouraging. Like, oh gosh, are we, are we actually getting any better at this? But I think it's one of the things that I actually really hope to do with this show is not necessarily to convince people to think like you or I, or to vote the way that we do, but to at least raise some questions like, oh, maybe I haven't actually done the hard work. Like you were saying of choosing empathy before I had that mic drop post or I responded with that snarky text. Yeah. And I'm not, again, listen, if you've listened to the show for more than 12 seconds, you know that I like snark and I like <laughs> sarcasm and it's like a love language of my family. But I, I also really want to kind of confess and own that there have been plenty of times though, where like what was perceived maybe on the surface is like your run of the mill sarcasm actually was like a lack of empathy. It was like a hardness of heart. And I think especially for Christ followers, this isn't just like a, oh, it's like a soft skill, life skill thing to like work towards. I think part of being a Jesus person is is growing in empathy. And that's that is tough to do. But I think that I think most most worthwhile things are tough to do. Like it, it does take work to actually grow in this area, to choose it over and over again. And I think, yeah, like you were saying, now more than ever, it just seems critical. Yeah, and the reason we keep saying, harping on this, that we need to choose it and that this isn't the current of culture, it says later in the article, it says, this is not fertile soil for empathy. And by some measures, empathy has shriveled. One particular alarming study, uh, and you can click on it. I don't know exactly that, how the details of this study, but you can click on it in this article. It said it found that the average America in tooth, American in 2009 was less, less empathetic than 75% of Americans just 30 years before. Wow. In other words, empathy is fading, but mm. maybe you didn't need a study to tell you that. Mm. Our culture appears more callous by the year. Norms of civility are being steadily shredded. Our species rests on human connection, but that foundation feels shakier than ever. And that paragraph, I think, really gets at it. And, um, you know, so the question becomes, how do you as an individual or you as a church, like we can't change our whole culture, uh, but how do we, as like you said, individuals or parents, uh, how do we teach our children or pastors or leaders? How do we grow our churches uh, in the desire to be empathetic and to model that? Because it's increasingly going to look different from our culture. Um, those stats to me are, are pretty amazing. 75% of people are less empathetic than the average person was uh, 30 years ago, I think is really telling. Yeah. This article is by uh, Jamil Zaki, who's a PhD, by the way, and an author. And he actually offers a couple of suggestions. I always want to try to get to some kind of practical takeaway yeah. with things like this if we can. So here, here's some tools that psychologists have found to help people better connect. 
The first, and we've talked about it a lot on the show, meditation. The idea that we can control what we feel may run counter to our beliefs, but the other traditions have embraced it for millennia. Contemplative practices such as loving kindness meditation were developed specifically to help individuals sharpen their empathy. Uh, Storytelling, where statistics fail to move us, stories succeed. They bring us into one person's perspective, allow us to resonate with their joy and pain, and are steeped in humanity. It's a lot of why, for the last month or so, Brian and I have done uh, as best we can try to intentionally assume postures of listeners and learners because we know that people are kind of bombarded and in a lot of ways inundated by statistics, but until we actually hear people's stories, that to me, I think is really, really important. And then as Ricky Brown was talking about friendship, empathy dissolves when we see the world in terms of us and them, but it recovers just as quickly when we return to you and I decades Mm. of research demonstrate that when people make close personal contact with members of other groups under the right conditions, they experience less prejudice. I don't know if you're surprised by any of those, Brian, but like, I think Mm -hmm. those, the very least are three super doable, actionable next steps, you know? Yeah. That friendship one is so big too, because we've replaced our relations, our, our genuine friendships with many people in our lives with our online friendships. Uh, and that seems to be just a completely, a Facebook friend is very different from a real friend. You know, they, uh, there's a lot of overlapping, but, um, but this whole deal about, uh, you know what, if I remind myself of what it is that I love about you and our connection over time, I can then much more easily show you empathy. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everything you said, but it means that I can show you empathy and we can discuss things in more of a civilized manner. Uh, And again, one of the great points of this article is that that is not the the current of our culture. Uh, And so if we're actually going to do this well, it has to be done with intentionality uh, and, and we have to talk about it. Well, and it is worth mentioning too. I think there's a difference between connections and friendships. I think a lot of what we... A lot of what we have online are connections, and that's not a bad thing at all. And I think social media has its place, and I think remaining connected, for instance, during a time of quarantine is super significant. But to see connections or a network as the same as friendships and community, I think Mm -hmm. is a really dangerous misunderstanding. And I do like this article. And again, there's a, a book and a much longer article with all sorts of links to other articles, but we would recommend that you check it out because uh, I think now more than ever, this is a really, really important conversation for us to have. Well, the first hour is in the books. We got a lot coming up in the second hour, so stick around. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and Thriving Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. 
Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Mississippi's flag. Also, will we normalize COVID deaths? And then lastly, and finally, some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian James Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. The Facebook page is The Common Good Radio Show. That's not only where we post all of these articles that we mentioned, which, by the way, and maybe maybe we should say this more often, we don't even agree with everything that we post there. Like, sometimes right. it's just to spur conversation. Every once in a while, we'll get a comment on an article and I get the impression that that person thinks that we like endorse that article. That's not what's going on. We would just love to engage in dialogue. We realize that uh, now more than ever, I think that's really important. Like we were just talking about, do so with the heart of empathy. But that's the Facebook page. You can review that and like that and share that. You can also find the podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. And if you would not mind, it would mean the world to our little radio hearts. If you subscribed, rated, and reviewed, it takes just a quick second and it really does help us out a whole lot. And it means a whole lot. And it'll put a smile on our faces if that's a motivation. Uh, Brian, you had referenced this story as a recommendation. And yeah. I, before we kind of get into this article specifically, um, I'd love to know, you use the word symbols when suggesting it. The Mississippi flag and the significance of symbols like this. What, what role in your mind as a Christ follower, as a pastor, do the symbols have? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I think in the in this particular story with Mississippi or with the statues that have been coming down, um, symbols, uh, things that people hold as important uh, to represent them, uh, say a lot about what they value. And so um, it points to something bigger. And and I think that was what was going on with the Mississippi flag here. Uh, people could just be like, well, it's just a flag. It's just a symbol. It doesn't mean that much. But but it becomes kind of a, a doorway into a much bigger mindset of what's going on uh, in that state over the years. Uh, how would you answer that question? That was a deep question about symbols. I'd like to know <laughs> what you think. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's that deep. I do think it's interesting, though, because, you know, you and I are in the United States of America. So we, in a lot of ways, are a result of a kind of Western Protestantism. But, you know, we have like Eastern brothers and sisters who have a completely different relationship, religiously speaking with icons and images and symbols. And I yeah. feel like for, for a lot of us and you and I both grew up CMA. So, our, you know, our, our backgrounds are actually weirdly similar. Um, symbols are like at best, they're like nice. They're like nice add ons, but not yeah. really necessary, not really critical where there's a massive, massive swath of like the, Christian worldview that says no symbols are interesting, are massively significant to to the point where some would you know venerate, and that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, I, I do think we almost we almost have problematically a mm, sometimes dismissive view of symbols in Western Protestantism because we don't really maybe necessarily understand their power, which does play into this particular discussion. So the headline reads, Mississippi State Legislator Passes Bill to Remove Confederate Symbol from State Flag in Historic Vote. What is going on here? Yeah, so this came up over the past couple weeks. Again, it's come up before many times, the Mississippi uh, flag. And yep. the bill will now go to the governor, Tate Reeves, Republican, who has said he would sign it into law. 
they said once the legislature sends the final bill to his desk and he's had the opportunity to review it, Governor Reese will sign the bill. Uh, it cleared the state house by a 91 to 23 vote and the Senate by a 37 to 14. And it comes as Mississippi lawmakers have been weighing a change to their flag for weeks amid ongoing racial justice protests across the country. The flag was first adopted in 1894, has red, white and blue stripes with the Confederate battle emblem in the corner. Uh, the bill establishes now a commission to develop a new flag with the Confederate emblem uh, without, I'm sorry, the Confederate emblem that includes the phrase in God we trust. And then the voters of Mississippi will vote on a new design this November. So a lot of the reps calling this a historic moment. There was a lot of uh, really poignant speeches and then reactions by particularly the African-American legislatures um, about how this has been so hard for them for so long and, and how this is. Uh, and this, to me, feels like uh, a, a, a not just an appropriate, a necessary step uh, as we continue to talk about uh, what are the things that divide us? What are the uh, what are the moves going forward? And so uh, I'm happy to see this in Mississippi, an offshoot that I'd love to talk about uh, much of this. Now, again, this has been going on for a while, but uh, some very prominent college football and uh, college athletic programs uh, really brought this to the forefront. There's a kid, uh, let me look up his name. His name is uh, Kylan Hill from Mississippi State, All-American running back, I believe, who said, I'm not playing in Mississippi as long as that flag is here. Mm. Uh, and then the SEC conference said, you can't have any championships in your state until that flag goes. And it's really interesting how quickly that went. It was a, a kind of an aside to this story. It was, again, uh, the power that, uh, people can leverage by whether it be athletics or entertainment or other things, you, you can really leverage that power in ways to make substantive change. Does any part of you, is there any part of you that's disappointed that it took something like an athlete refusing to play in order to make this change? Um, disappointed yet. Yeah. You know, you would have liked to have thought that Mississippi, uh, would have made this change a long time ago or that NASCAR would have made their change a long time ago that, and I've never lived in the South, but I've never really understood the, um, the kind of uh, veneration or love affair with the Confederate flag. And so uh, knowing how hurtful that is to so many people, you would have thought that this could have happened a long time ago. So disappointed, you know, you would have thought hopefully it could have gone sooner, but at least it's happening. And if it took football, college football in the SEC South to make it happen, then uh, good on those guys, coaches and players for doing it. So I don't know that I'd say disappointed. Uh, you just wish it would have happened sooner. But, man, it's also an, a testament to just the um, to the movement of culture right now, especially around the Confederate flag and Confederate statues. And other, you and I talked about statues last week, but um, it seems like anything that was linked with the Confederacy right now, uh, in any way is uh, kind of being done away with. And again, I'm not from the South, but from my vantage point as somebody uh, watching from the outside, I think that's a good thing. So what, what do you think about, I mean, you mentioned the 91 to 23 vote and the 37 to 14 vote. If you had to guess, well, what was you, what would you say, what would you presume was going on in the, uh, the minds and hearts of the 23 and the 14? Oh, I think in in this case, there's still going to be uh, a large remnant. Let's not fool ourselves. A large remnant of people who think this is a terrible idea, uh, yeah, sure. who are mad about this. And those are those people 
who live in Miss, Mississippi. There are also some people, like you said, who have been elected to the legislature in Mississippi. And so uh, I'm actually surprised that that's all how few it was. I would have thought it was more, but um, I suppose politicians, they've got to kind of go with <laughs> uh, the, the current a little bit. But no, that doesn't surprise me. My guess is uh, it, it's not like the Confederate flag is going to go away. And so much you saw it still being flown at a NASCAR event, even though it was said, we're not going to have it here anymore. I suspect, even if they get a new official flag, that this uh, this issue in Mississippi is not going away. What do you think the new flag is going to look like? It sounds like it's going to kind of still be like what it was, but they're going to incorporate the words in God we trust and take out the Confederate symbol. It looked a lot like the American flag, but instead of stars there being a Confederate flag in that top corner. So somehow hmm. uh, it would be kind of fun to get to kind of, I'm not an, art- an artist at all, but it would be kind of fun to get to try to design a new flag, man. How many people get to do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool opportunity. It is interesting too. I've, I imagine you've seen a lot of the memes where people are like listing things that lasted longer than the Confederacy. Have you seen those? <laughs> no, you haven't seen any of them. Oh, I'm so surprised by that. Well, maybe during the break, we'll look some up and, uh, We'll work him into a future segment. Coming up next, though, some ancient wisdom, 17 signs of a lack of humility. It's not really that ancient, but it still is pretty interesting. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. I missed you. Glad you're here. That's it. That's all. Anyway, <laughs> you can find us on Facebook if you like. The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles we talk about. We post articles we sometimes don't talk about it. Your feedback actually does sometimes help determine if we talk about an article. If you want to send us a message, we do encourage that. You can send us a review. You can share that with somebody. You can tag a friend. Any engagement is good engagement, even if it's not great. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing really does help us out a whole lot. Brian, do you think maybe people don't know how to subscribe, rate, and review? Should we give like more detailed instructions about how that looks? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Because that's why they're not doing it. I don't I don't know how to do it. I've never done it. <laughs> Have you ever subscribed, rated, or reviewed to a podcast? I've subscribed, rated, reviewed our podcast and a few others, but uh, yeah. You reviewed ours? What review did you leave about our oh, podcast? No, I'm sorry. I rated. I did not review oh. ours. You're like, these guys I, I, are awesome. I reviewed it like, uh, one of those guys is great, but the other, eh. <laughs> Your username is just Brian Fromm, so it's not yes. even. <laughs> <laughs> not uh. even trying to hide it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> All right, so I saw this today or yesterday. Uh, it's from Joe's Maria Escriva. Am I saying that correctly? You think? I think he so. Is a uh, I think a yeah Spanish Roman Catholic priest who founded something I believe called the Opus Dei, which was like it was an organization of of like lay people and priests. Uh, no. And if I remember correctly, I think that. It was it was really trying to elevate like the ordinary life. I really think that was like central to to his sort of thesis and and pathos was like yeah, ordinary life is is significant, and we we always kind of crave and long for these like mountaintop experiences, which are fine. But this uh, this idea of like ordinary life being a, a means by which we can be sanctified and grow in our holiness. Either way, inter- interesting interesting uh, priest and leader and thinker. 
And uh, I don't I don't even know who compiled this. It's just a photo that I saw on Facebook that it was 17 signs of a lack of humility. So 17 is a lot. We're going to try and yep. get through all of them. How do you want to do this? Should we just get through the 17 and then respond? Or do you want to respond to each one individually? What do you think? I think we go, uh, let's just get through them. These are convicting. I'm going to warn people in advance. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, 17 signs of a lack of humility. Here, let's do it this way. Let's just go back and forth. And if the one you read really stands out to you and you want to add to it, go for it. How's that? Sound? Okay. Why don't you take number one then? Number one. Uh, number one of the 17 signs of a lack of humility. Number one, thinking that what you do or say is better than what others do or say. I feel attacked. Yes, already. Already. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> number two, always wanting to get your own way. Oh, boy. This is why did I choose this? I don't know. This is going to this going to just make us feel bad. Uh, number three, arguing when you are not right or when you are insisting stubbornly or with bad manners, arguing when you are not right or when you are insisting stubbornly or with bad manners. I, that whole one about arguing when you're not right, but just still wanting to seem like you're right uh, is seems really foolish. And we do that so often, don't we? We, I, I've mentioned this before, and I'm really not proud of this, but I've been particularly like with my wife. I've been in the middle of an argument, and then in my head thought, you know, I think she's right. But I, think, <laughs> I think I think I think I can still win this. Like, what a horrible thought that is! It's so I can't yes. be the only one. I'm sure I'm not. No, but. no. Uh, number four, giving your opinion without being asked for it when charity does not demand you to do so. Man, oh man. Hmm. Like number five. radio show, maybe. Yes. Number five. This one's short, but packs a punch. Uh, this is of the 17 signs of a lack of humility. Number five, despising the point of view of others. Oof. Man, oh, man. Number six, not being aware that all the gifts and qualities you have are on loan. I love the way that's worded. Like anything you're good at or any resource you have is a gift on loan that we're to steward well in the world. I think that's so important. Yeah. Number seven. Not acknowledging that you are unworthy of all honor or esteem, mm. even the ground you're treading on or the things you own. Not acknowledging that you're unworthy. That's good. Are we going to make it through all 17 of these without weeping? We are. Yes. Seven, <laughs> 17 signs of a lack of humility. Uh, mentioning yourself as an example in conversation. Oh, boy. Oh, that one hurts. <laughs> How would I get through a sermon? <laughs> See, that's pretty much our whole radio show. Exactly. Number nine. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. Speaking badly about yourself so that they may form a good opinion of you or contradict you. Kind of one of those. Oh, oh I'm not that good. OK, that's a good. One. Number 10, making excuses when rebuked. Mm. Number 11. Again, this is 17 signs of a lack of humility. Number 11, hiding some humiliating faults from your director so that he may not lose the good opinion he has of you. This whole concept, we talked about it last week of hiding and putting on masks uh, is a sign of a lack of humility. Yeah, that one feels specific too, doesn't it? I'd love to ask him. Your director. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, in parentheses, it gives his director's name. Um, <laughs> or he's the director. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, good point. Number 12, hearing praise with satisfaction or being glad that others have spoken well of you. Hmm. Number 13, being hurt that others are held in greater esteem than you. That whole man, that whole one of comparison. That's a big one. This one, this one reminds me of a Simon Sinek excerpt so much. Number 14, refusing to carry out menial tasks. He, he frames it when talking about leadership. He's like, you know what leadership is? It's when 
you're in the office and you use the last of the uh, collective coffee without, or and then you make more coffee rather than waiting for somebody else to do it, or slowing down to let someone else merge in front of you. It's like th- those are small acts of leadership, and yeah. that's actually how you like grow and you build that muscle of leadership. I think that's I think that's a really good one. Number fifteen: seeking or wanting to be singled out. Yeah, that whole desire, that kind of look at me and wanting to be in the front of the line. What's interesting about these is, not surprisingly, so many of these are antithetical to what Jesus said, <laughs> who is the picture of humility. So it's wanting to be singled out. Yeah, this one is worded strange, but I think I get what he's getting at. Letting drop words of self-praise in conversation or words that might show your honesty, your wit or skill, your professional prestige, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. And the last one, these are 17 signs of of a lack of humility. Number 17, uh, being ashamed of not having certain possessions. So not the Mm. craving of possessions, but being ashamed uh, that we don't have certain things. That's an interesting list right there. Okay, so rather than doing what I would normally do and ask you which one stood out to you, which one did you like the most? I kind of want to ask you which one did you like the least or disagree with? Mm. <laughs> that's an interesting one uh you i up a motorbike over there what was that yeah that's that's me filling uh filling time mm. uh i would say uh, i not that i disagree with it but the one that surprised me uh despising the point of view of others is mm. uh as opposed to that i guess that word despising that that feels really strong and I know lack of humility, I don't always despise the point of view of others. I just want to make sure that's not as good as my point of view. Like, I want to make no. sure people are listening to my point of view. Uh, but despising the point of view of others, not even wanting to consider that as interesting. Which one stood out to you? Yeah, number 12, I don't know that I agree with. Which, mm-hmm. again, this is maybe because I'm also a words of affirmation guy, so maybe I need to check my own uh, my own wiring here. The hearing praise with satisfaction or being glad that others have spoken well of you. I just – I. I wonder if, I don't know, again, this was written a little while ago, and I think that he passed in the 70s, but this idea of like, yeah, that was ni- it was nice that, you know, that sermon meant something to someone doesn't, doesn't mean that it has to give you a big head or that you have to in any way become like, you know, addictively craving that That's kind right. of feedback. But I don't know, what do you, th- what do you think of that? Is there, is there uh, something to learn there that, hey, hearing, the pra- the pr- hearing your praise with satisfaction or being glad others have spoken well of you is is maybe problematic. I I think I'm with you on that one. I don't see that as problematic in hearing it. I see the problem being that when I'm searching, you know, we joke a lot that I'm a words of affirmation guy. When I find myself searching it out, like, Hey, please me. uh, That's kind of next level. And I can fall into that very quickly. Yeah. That's a good distinction. Either way, we've posted this list over on the Facebook page. We would love to know which one stood out to you, which maybe rubbed you the wrong way. What would you add? Are the things that maybe you've heard or read or experienced that uh, even in your own heart, you're like, yeah, when I see that show up, that's how I know I have a humility issue. We would love to know any thoughts or feedback or interaction that you have with that over on the Facebook page. And coming up next, this headline kind of stopped me in my tracks. It says, will we normalize COVID deaths in the same way we tolerate gun violence? That's coming up mm-hmm. next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hello, lads and ladies. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm. And together, with our powers combined, we're The Common Good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that took a real weird turn super quick. Just trying to spice it up a little bit. 
here on this Monday. I it, I did hear somebody say, I was listening to a podcast, I think, this morning, and the, and the guy was saying, Mondays just feel like Saturdays. Everything Every day is Saturday. And I'm like, I feel like every day feels like Monday, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't, I don't really get the weekend vibe. But either way, uh, you can find us a bunch of places. And Brian Fromm would love to tell you where some of those places are. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. There you can find uh, articles we've discussed, interviews we have done. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can do the same on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. They can, they can read about us there, man. I uh, probably even see the picture. Is, is that the picture with us with face masks on? Maybe it's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, get our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. We are grateful for those of you who do podcasts. So, Speaking I, of grateful, Brian, I'd like to tell you about Thrivent. Thrivent.com. Oh, that's is a, a great segue right point. there. Oh, thank you so much. You can also go to thrivent.com slash careers if you're looking for a career change, or maybe you're not even looking, you're just curious or interested. If you want to know more about Thrivent, by the way, they're a Fortune 500 not-for-profit, which is hard to do. There's not a lot on the list that are not-for-profits, but they, they've they been around for more than 100 years. So I've been a member for eight, and uh, I'm super grateful for them and the way that they come alongside people and they're helping others. Plus, and we've been sharing a bunch of this on our Facebook page, they've been crushing it during this pandemic because they've been providing all sorts of free resources and webinars for leaders and for parents and for kids. So go like their Facebook page, go to thriving.com and then head over to thriving.com slash careers. If you're interested in maybe joining their team. All right. So this is from uh, America, the Jesuit review, and it's written by father Michael Rosier. Uh, here's the headline. Will we normalize COVID deaths in the same way we tolerate gun violence? What's happening here, Brian? Yeah, let me jump down a couple paragraphs. He writes, in the coming months, we risk our response to COVID taking on the characteristics of our response to gun violence. Regardless of one's position on guns, there's simply no denying that we in the United States experience more death and disability due to guns than any other industrialized economy. He writes 12 per 100,000 on an annual basis, combining suicide and homicide, or about 10 times the rate of other high-income nations. The same disparity may soon be true of COVID. Early in the pandemic, other countries, including the United Kingdom, Spain, and Italy, experienced high mortality rates, but the United States may become the only industrialized economy that sustains such death rates without ever fully suppressing the first wave of infections. He says, Mm. as we mourn those lost to COVID, we should consider what we will consider the, quote, new normal. We have a choice between manageable changes to our social lives and sustained levels of hospitalization and death because of this virus. Most countries have chosen the former, but we are dangerously close to collectively accepting uh, the latter, where we still normalize deaths that other countries will act to prevent and lie to ourselves that nothing can be done. And so that's a really dark two paragraphs. But mm. uh, uh, the uh, the HHS secretary, um, Health and Human Services secretary for the Trump administration was quoted yesterday, I believe it was on TV uh, he said the window is closing for us to get our arms around this right now again as it starts to spike again in many places. And his thing was the window's closing. Uh, we need to take very proactive measures or else we're going to start again having these increased death rates and stuff. And I think this article is raising uh, do we have the desire uh, mm. collectively as a nation to fight that or do we just kind of say – uh, you know what? We're okay with some death in order to keep this. Like that's the debate we've been having since the beginning of this, right? And I think a lot of us thought we were past that, 
And now it's coming right back onto our doorstep, where, as this article points out, it's not happening in other countries right now. Well, let me let me just read the the last three short paragraphs, because this is this is just some good writing. He says, above all, we must resist the temptation to view everything through the lens of political ideology. Indeed, it feels like a fool's errand to mention gun violence and expect a civil discussion. And talking about covid is beginning to take on that same hue. Big problems require broad support, and that is not possible if we are accepting the framing of COVID matters by those who benefit from dividing us. That I want to frame and like put somewhere that else. That was so well written. He goes on, though. He says, if COVID required only a technological solution, the United States would likely be leading the way. But we must realize that some problems can best be addressed with social or cultural changes. Until we have an effective treatment or vaccine, we need to build consensus on the small reasonable changes to our behaviors for which we can all be held accountable. It is still possible that we will not normalize COVID in the same way we have with other preventable harms like gun violence, but we must all insist out of a place of love that this is our home and it is a place where unnecessary death should never be normal. Doing so with COVID would give us proof that important social change is still possible, offering hope for other issues that require similar solutions. I, I'm curious, have you have you ever even really considered the similarities the way that he's framed them? Not at all. No, not at all. Me like for me, for me, it's all been about, gosh, we as a country need to come together uh and and you know get past partisanship around COVID. Uh that this virus is the same for Republicans and Democrats and that uh we've got to kind of uh, come to a consensus and be all in this together. But when you frame it around things like gun violence that we haven't been able to have a consensus over or, uh, you know, other issues, whatever those other issues are, where we just haven't been able to have any consensus. And in fact, there's just more polarization. Uh, it probably shouldn't surprise us that there's this much polarization and this much, um, you know, like he said, people going, uh, who, who can divide us aren't the people we should be listening to right now, but those are the people who, quite frankly, are setting the policy. And so, uh, you know, it's really difficult. And it, when I read articles like this, it's really enlightening because it's so well written, but it also um, paints a grim picture that, you know, we might not have it in our culture right now, in our country right now to kind of do something that requires um, kind of broad uh, buy-in uh, that we did it for a little while, but that we might not have the stomach to do it again. And that we're just going to have to, uh, uh, you know, play out how this plays out. And that saddens me to say that, but it, it does feel like that when you watch the news, when you read online, uh, there doesn't seem to be a consensus around anything, face masks, social distancing, or anything bigger than that. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Let me read a little more from the middle of this article, he says public policy, just like our personal lives, is about balancing competing goods. Yet if we can't find a balance when the stakes are low, doing so when the stakes are high is quite unlikely. For example, if we step back from the hyper political nature of it. Perhaps we can all admit that wearing a mask in an indoor public space is a fairly low stakes request. In fact, 68 percent of Americans believe it should be mandatory, at least in indoor public spaces. But the stakes mm. get admittedly higher when we think about, for example, reopening nursing homes to visitors. We want to ensure that residents do not suffer from loneliness and isolation, but we must also protect them from exposure to COVID. Nursing homes, like the schools we, we may be sending kids to this fall, are spaces that require broadly shared social expectations to function well. You as a father, Brian, you're dealing with the school aspect, but you're also right. wrestling with the church aspect, which, by the way, I meant to ask you, you guys held your first outdoor service this weekend. Is that right? Uh, two weeks ago, we held our second one two this week. Okay. Uh, 
really fun, but also you do see that there are people um, mm-hmm. in very different spots of what they're willing to do. And so the question, you know, you becomes, do I, do I have to play traffic cop here? How does it do? And so they've been great and people for the most part have really followed the rules, but I wouldn't say you just see it. You see it in any group you're at that people are really in different spots with the whole COVID-19 and what we should be doing right now. Yeah, I totally believe it. Either way, again, I feel like we really locked out with a number of really well-written articles today. This one's on our Facebook sure. page. We would love to know what you think. Even if you want to link to other articles for future reading, we would love for you to engage over on the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And to land the plane today, finally, some good news. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of peaked with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality was just their heart to give back to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously to be wise with money and live generously and that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them and so if you're interested in learning more I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today Ladies and gentlemen it's time for some everyone home stretch we're almost we're almost there in the common good my name is ian simpkins along with the lovely brian from lovely Thank brian you. from i'll take it i'll take it <laughs> i knew i knew you would i knew you would have a problem with that i you know what i just read by the way i don't know that this fits under some good news it looks like cards against humanity is canceled really <laughs> yeah it just it just uh is blowing up the twitter sphere right now i don't know if you're a cards of uh cards against humanity guy or not but yeah, it looks I'm like not, but it's isn't there like a like an adult version of that and a kid version? Am I am I thinking of the right game? Oh, I don't know that there's a kid version. There might oh, be. Okay. <laughs> All right, again, you know, let's just spend a whole segment riffing on things we know nothing about. Like, ah, I don't think there's a. I could just easily look it up. I have no idea. Either way, I just uh, I just saw that, and I thought that was interesting. Okay, so here's a segment. Uh, that we've called some good news. And usually the majority of the articles are from something called good news network. You can learn more at goodnewsnetwork.org. By the way, they don't sponsor us. I just really like the website. And uh, what we'll typically do is I'll just find a, a couple of stories that I find really heartwarming or interesting. Thought this would be a good way to end the show. In fact, we have a, a private think tank where I'll often sort of post links to stories that I'm thinking about doing for the week ahead. And my friend Angie was like, yeah, all of these are just super depressing. So best of luck this week. And I was like, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I need to bring some, uh, some good news into yeah. the fray here. So, so what we'll do is I'll put them in our little rundown that Brian and I share, and then I'll just let Brian choose one at random to go first with. I'm going to go with garbage men break down in tears when residents surprise them with thank you party attended by mayor. Love it. Uh, Saul and Keon have never missed a day of work picking up trash in Miami Beach, and they're especially glad they were covering their route this week as a beautiful surprise awaited them. 
When their huge truck rolled down the street into the North Bay uh, Road community, they found scores of residents who'd gotten up early to line the street with signs and balloons, all to simply say, we love you. Jennifer Elegant uh, wanted to show her family. What a great last name, huh? Jennifer Elegant wanted to show her family's appreciation. So she organized the socially distancing surprise thank yous to honor the essential workers whom she called extraordinary. Even Miami Beach Mayor Dan Gelber showed up to salute them because Saul Scruggs and Keon Richardson do so much more than pick up trash. Said they bring an incredible positive energy to the entire neighborhood, Jennifer said. Simply put, they spread joy. So what a great thing to, how many times do we just, you know, wave to the garbage men or not give much thought to what they do. But these guys have been serving their community and the people gave back. That's really, that's a great story right there. You might call that some good news, Brian. That's right. Uh, All right. Now I should have mentioned this off air, but there's one about a nine-year-old who is uh, selling homemade bracelets. I want to end the segment with that one. So don't choose, don't choose that one. Okay. Uh, Here's, here's an interesting headline. After getting laid off, lasagna lady responds to coronavirus by cooking 1,200 pans for strangers in need. Oh, in an all too familiar story during the coronavirus pandemic, a woman arrives at her retail job only to hear that she is out of work. Many would respond with a sense of self-pity, but her reaction has been an inspiration to thousands. Like many of us, Michelle Brenner, who worked at a menswear store, first turned to comfort food using her grandmother's special recipe. She made a huge pan of lasagna. Then she offered to go grocery shopping for some friends and was dismayed that they had added frozen lasagnas to their list. Her culinary mind screamed, this just won't do it all. (laughs) It was then that she realized she could put some smiles on some faces in Gig Harbor, Washington. The Italian-American posted on Facebook letting her friends and neighbors know that she would whip up some homemade goodness for them. All they had to do was ask and come by and pick it up. She received... $1,200 government stimulus check and used all of it to buy ingredients for her cooking. I love that. A retired neighbor and unemployed friend were the first to take her up on the generous offer. Before long, many strangers who had heard about her kindness started stopping by. Three months have passed now, and Michelle is still assembling the layers of love eight hours a day, seven days a week. She has made over 1,200 pans of lasagna, no questions asked for anybody who wants one. She even began dropping them off for essential workers at local police and fire departments. I love this story so much. What a hero. She said, I can't change the world, but I can make lasagna. That's That's a sermon illustration right there. Yes, please. Uh, Let's see. No one came to students' graduation, uh, so the teacher takes him out to dinner and buys him a car. (laughs) Yes. Uh, What started as a lonely graduation day for a teen in Alabama has turned into a priceless opportunity to bond with his teacher. Uh, Now that the teacher is working to get that student a car that will get him started in his adult life. On Thursday, uh, Bessemer City High School held its annual graduation ceremony. Dominique Moore was one of the teachers involved in coordinating the event. After the ceremony had ended, Dom was cleaning up from the festivities. Nearly everybody had left to celebrate with friends and family, but one young man was still sitting there by himself. I know his moods and I knew he wasn't himself, Dom said. I asked him, where are your people? And he was like, nobody's here. Not knowing what to say at first, the, the teacher told him, I expect big things from you and it's going to be okay. Dom assumed that someone would show up eventually to give the graduate a ride home, but nobody did. When Dom offered to drive him home, neither of the two had any idea that this was to be more than just a ride home. The teacher decided to take him out to eat at any restaurant of his choice. They ended up at the Cheesecake Factory and enjoyed a hearty meal and dessert to celebrate the graduate's achievement. At first, the two were fighting back tears, but before long, they were having a great time. Later in the evening, Dom took to Facebook and shared a photo and some thoughts. 
He says he doesn't normally post about these types of situations. Uh, he, he, he reached out to anyone who may want to be a blessing to this young man. Before long, generous people, many of them strangers, had sent more than $5,000 in donations. Dom took the teen to open a bank account with the money and is also hoping to help him buy a car and save up to attend college one day. What an awesome job by that teacher. Gotta love stories like that, man. All right, we got three left, so we got to hustle. You ready? I'm ready. Senior home in Brazil creates hug tunnels so visitors can embrace their loved ones. The photo is just lovely, too. The COVID-19 pandemic has been especially hard on elderly people who have been advised to strictly adhere to stay-at-home orders and social distancing guidelines. Uh, For those living in care facilities, this has meant that friends and loved ones cannot even visit them in person. But a care home in Brazil has come up with a creative solution. I think we maybe even talked about this story. Uh, they, I'll sort of paint a picture. It's like this long hanging like plastic sheet with uh, like sleeves uh, that go both directions so people can walk up to uh, this kind of hanging plastic sheet and embrace loved ones. And there's all these other photos of people. Look at this one here at the entrance. There's one, I see one at a door. You, This one's a lot of... Uh, a lot of visual components. You just got to go and, and read it and look at the pictures because it, I guarantee it'll bring a smile to your face. It's lovely. Yeah. Let me fly through this next one so you can get to the one you wanted to end with. Uh, okay. COVID-19 lockdown is bringing fathers closer to their kids with improved relationships for 40% who were surveyed. A pair of new studies reveals a silver lining amid the COVID gloom. Many fathers feel closer to their kids during the pandemic and want to create a new normal going forward. I'm just going to leave that right there because that gives you the message. And if that's a silver lining here, that is really good news right there. Yeah, no kidding. All right. Last but not least, I'm not going to read the headline because I love how it starts. It says some unlikely heroes in Minneapolis have raised $100,000 to support black owned businesses and neighborhoods, and they're only nine years old. It all started one day when Cameron Johnson and five of her friends were bored. So in order to have a little bit of fun, they had the bright idea to sell some bracelets rather than just keep the money for themselves. Uh, Cameron's mom suggested it would be nice to do something positive for others, and the kids agreed. Cameron and Friends, Bracelets for Unity and Justice, was born. The kiddos hoped to make a small impact with their enterprise, but since May 30th, these altruistic children have managed to raise almost $100,000. Just in time for Father's Day in the U.S., Cameron's dad is super proud. She made over $800 the first day her dad, former NFL player Ron Johnson, told WCCO News. She has blisters on her fingers now, and she's been working really hard. Small business owners in Minneapolis have been hit hard in recent months. First, the coronavirus pandemic shut them down for more than a month and violence following the death of George Floyd resulted in damage and looting. The money raised by Cameron and her friends will deliver welcome aid to those who were trying to get back on their feet. Just ending today's show with a little bit of good news. Again, goodnewsnetwork.org is where you should go for those and all other good news stories. Just a great website to bookmark. Uh, I hope that it's been as fun for you, Brian, as it has for me. We are super thrilled, though, to have our producer, John PJ. Yes, we are. Called. So, so good to have you back, man. Really looking forward to the week ahead. And you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> 